Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series on grand challenges of art history, digital methods, and social art history. My name is Anne Helmreich, Associate Director of the Getty Foundation. And I am Paul Jaskett, Professor of Art History at Duke University. The contributors to these podcasts all responded to our invitation to address what we self-consciously described as a grand challenge. This was organized under the auspices of the Research and Academic Program of the Clark which generously sponsored our scholarly colloquia and ensuing public conversation in April 2019. The phrase grand challenge is one frequently adopted in the sciences to refer to the great unanswered questions that represent promising frontiers. For art history, we saw the conjoining of digital and computational methods in the social history of art as one of those grand challenges. Given that investigating society in all its complexity also seemingly calls for the big data so central to computational methods, we asked the podcast participants how digital art history might help us explore the grand challenges of the social history of art's future. How are digital methods effective or not at analyzing large-scale structural issues important to art history and modes of visual expression? Our intent is to discuss central concerns of contemporary practitioners of the social history of art, as well as those of digital humanists who claim an allegiance to these same questions. In doing so, we aimed to consider practical, rigorous, archival, and theoretical ways of addressing such a task with both computational and analog means. We hope that you enjoy this series. the advent of any new technology, whether it's something like photography or the internet, or or if we think about um, you know, social technologies like the, the idea of the modern state or um, the idea of a capitalist economy or you know anything like that, anything that organizes people into a set of relations, that it affects how we think about our work and it affects how we think about um, the function and the meaning of art. It affects how we think about our sociality. In this podcast, we're bringing together several participants from our spring 2019 convening at the Clark Art Institute that was dedicated to the grand challenges of art history, digital computational methods and social art history. And we're continuing that conversation today. I'm Ann Helmreich with Betty Foundation. And joining me today is Cole Rosens from the University of Louvain in Belgium and Blake Stimson from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Today, we're thinking about the future of the university and higher education in the digital age. And we're gonna look at these questions through the lens of our shared practice in art history and our shared interest in digital art history. So to, to launch our conversation, Before we sort of dig into the topic of the future of the university and higher education, I'd really welcome the opportunity to learn more about your backgrounds 
more specifically, how did you end up working in higher education? After all, an art history degree can be a pathway to a lot of different institutional settings from museums to auction houses and galleries and other types of arts organizations. So what brought you to the university and higher education with your professional home? So maybe, Cohen, if I can ask you to start. Okay, thank you, Anne. Um, well, I guess I never really wanted to become a professional art historian, so to speak. Um, all I wanted to do was to learn about art. I wanted to read about art, discuss art. I wanted to write about art. And so I think, yeah, most people would call that doing research. Um, but in my book, research is just another word for learning and vice versa. So I uh, quickly realized that a university offered the best possible setting to, um, for me to pursue my ambition and my, my, my wishes to learn about art. I have a kind of a mixed bag of a background. I started out as a religion major of all things in college and took a few uh, art, art classes along the way. And then I happened into a career immediately following college in, in engineering, civil engineering, designing parking lots and sewers. And at the same time, I uh, began working on the side on weekends, essentially, as, a, as an artist. And so I was doing engineering and working as an artist for a number of years and um, started in on a career um, as an artist. Uh, and then the uh, 1989 Jesse Helms, Robert Maplethorpe debacle uh, hit and uh, that made the art world, the New York art world, a much more competitive place and in many ways a much less interesting place. And so around that time, I started to study art history. I got involved with the Whitney program and carried on uh, with my art historical inquiry. I think I never was interested in museum careers and so on, in part just because I, I realized as a um, as an artist that one of the hard parts about being an artist for me was uh, the business part, um, you know, the business side of being an artist. And so my focus then was really on the, the idea part of art making. And then that led me to the academic career in art history. So I hear you both being kind of compelled by the world of ideas, the world of thinking, and, you know, higher education gives you that space for research and exploring ideas with your colleagues, with your students. So I can appreciate that pathway. But, you know, you're, yes, you're both in universities, but you're also in very different kinds of universities, Cohn and sitting in Belgium, um, in Leuven, you know, which is, you know, a, um, publicly funded, but publicly funded in a very different model than, say, the U.S. institutions, um, where someplace like where you are, Blake University of Illinois at Chicago. And, you know, higher education is facing some challenges today. And I'd love to hear from both of you what you see some of those challenges are, what those may be the key challenges rather than an endless list, but the key challenges for publicly funded, these public-facing universities, from your particular perspectives, Blake sitting in the States, um, in Chicago, or Cohn um, in Europe, uh, in Belgium, and, and those particular challenges. So, Blake, maybe uh, I'll, I'll take the privilege of starting with a colleague in the States and, and maybe ask you to start off on this question. 
Sure. Well, you know, I think, of course, one of the biggest challenges for publicly funded institutions generally, and, and particularly perhaps for publicly funded universities in the states, is is the political battle and uh, the idea that uh, publicly funded universities are an easy target for conservatives. And they're a, a kind of prized target, it would seem, uh, for conservatives, because it is a way to um, to undermine the uh, the political debates um, that exist in the world um, insofar as having an educated population is better able to engage uh, in political participation in various in various kinds of ways. So, um, you know, we feel that pretty acutely in Illinois, even though Illinois is a blue state, it is also a um, Midwestern state. And so the the forces of cultural conservatism, of political conservatism, and so on are are pretty readily um, apparent. So I think that would be the single biggest challenge. Um, I'll add one other thing to that, and that is that uh, many of our students, um, our, our student demographic generally at UIC is um, first or second generation immigrants, um, first or second generation English language speaker, uh, working class, first generation to go to college, um, et cetera. <clears throat> and so that means many of our students are under all sorts of pressures. They, uh, many of them work you know, full time and try to go to school full time. Many of them have extended family responsibilities, taking care of, of kids, taking care of elderly parents, um, uh, et cetera. And so with the constant pressure to defund, the constant increase in tuition, the constant decrease in other forms of support for students, uh, together with all these other pressures on them, it makes learning a challenge. You know, uh, it's hard sometimes to get students to do all their homework because they've got so much else going on in their lives. Um, so that puts us in a, in a, in a kind of a bind. Um, it feels like a noble struggle. That is to say, we're you know, really trying to do something that is valuable in, in educating these kids. Um, but it's hard for them. And that, of course, also makes it hard for us. Okay, that's really interesting, uh, Blake, because I think that um, the situation in, in Belgium and possibly in most uh, European countries is, is quite different because we, uh, I don't think in Belgium we have, well, of course, we have a couple of politicians questioning <laughs> the need uh, for higher education, but they don't really uh, play a part in the public debate anyway. So I think the, uh, I think in Belgium we all value access to higher um, education and so that also means that all programs uh, offered at these uh, public higher education institutions that these these uh, programs are heavily sub subsidized by the government so basically we can keep the uh, tuition fees quite low uh, only about 1000 euros per year so that's all the students have to pay so that's quite quite low um, and of course students still get uh, excellent uh, resources um, and, and thanks to the low fees and also a, a system of, of, of scholarships and, and support, um, we can attract students from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and of course, these low fees also lead to diversity, equity and, and um, inclusion among our students. Um, so I'm not claiming we are there yet, but at least we are um, on our way. 
Um, so that's that's quite um, different. I think that perhaps, and of course, we are still facing a complex um, financial situation uh, in which the traditional modes of funding are changing. So yes, we also feel a growing stress on uh, the sustainability of funding. Uh, we feel more and more pressure to explore new sources of income. I think that um, possibly the, the, the next generation of students is very different from this and previous generations. And I think in Belgium that might actually be one of the most uh, important challenges. So we are um, welcoming um, digital natives, but that doesn't mean that they are digital um, literates, so to speak. They have quite different and, and very um, idiosyncratic ways of, of using tools and technologies. Um, and so they also, they also have many ways to access and share information and, and knowledge or something that is supposed to be uh, information and knowledge because it's a thin line between knowledge and, and, and fantasy, of course. So I think these students, they um, challenge authority and, and um, more than we ever did. Uh, and, and I think it's also really important to realize they have different brains. Um, a lot of research has been done on how the internet, how the use of internet really changes uh, the brain. Um, and so it seems that we are um, yeah, having to accept the fact that we will see more and more students that are perhaps better in uh, problem solving as such or decision making. Um, but then, of course, uh, because of the internet use, they also have less um, or their skills of, of, of comprehension and, and retention are perhaps less developed. So that's a very, very different kind of, of, of student, I think. And so I think we need to think about um, yeah, changing or adapting the programs so that they feel um, welcome at the universities. Yeah, Blake, I'm wondering if you'd like to kind of respond to what Cohn was saying. And, and I also just want to kind of amplify something that you said, Blake, as well, picking up on the dialogue with Cohn. We're recording this today on the 3rd of November. This podcast won't be released till the spring. But um, the Chronicle of Higher Education, one of our leading journalism for higher ed, has been reporting, for example, the freedom of information um, or academic freedom claims by faculty at University of Florida um, who've been feeling political pressure and, and not being able to participate in um, as expert witnesses. Um, so these are these are things that are playing out in the news headlines here in the U.S. And then I'll just add that um, I, I took the opportunity to do a quick check um, and uh, U.S. News and World Reports indicates that this average student debt here in the United States is $30,000. So what a contrast Kun, to the fee structure you were describing in, in Belgium, which brings us back to the question of impact on students. But then, Cohn, you were adding that dimension of how the digital and growing up in a, as an Internet native is changing students, too. So, like, I'd welcome your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, um, you know, I taught for the University of California system for many years. And of course, uh, University of California system back in the 60s was was free for students. And so it was more or less on the same kind of model that the European universities are still operating under. That was changed in part by then Governor Ronald Reagan, you know, who led led the charge to um, to add tuition fees um, to the University of California system. So it's a 
we experience it here, I think, is a constant struggle. Um, and it's a struggle by and large that we, you know, have not not done well in. We're, we're on the losing side of that struggle. Um, but that, that of course, that means does not mean that we do not keep keep fighting the good fight. Um, one other comment I could make about uh, Cohn's um, thoughtful uh, commentary on how students are changing under the influence of of being digital natives is that um, one of the dynamics it seems that is played out in this country and plays out on on university campuses across the country is that our students and faculties and others are constantly being baited by conservatives on the right, uh, invited to enter into the culture wars. Uh, And of course, the conservatives bait uh, university audiences in this way because they know that if we get into a battle between um, a, a white identity versus other identities that they're there in this country still, there are more white people and that they're going to win that battle. And so uh, there are constant entreaties to do that. And this affects um, the digital question in very concrete ways, because of course, one of the consequences of digitalization is that we are routed more and more into interest groups, uh, to smaller and smaller communities of like-minded people, because the internet enables that. We're not all watching the same TV show every night. We're all, you know, chiming into our different interest group communities. And this, of course, I'm sure, as much in Europe as in the United States, it affects the uh, the way students think coming into class into the classroom. Um, we're on to Zoom, and uh, in that context, they're often very quick to divide themselves into smaller interest group camps, which um, has lots of consequences. One consequence is, of course, that it enriches the conversation, that you get more detailed and multivalent and, and multiple uh, positions that are developed in conversation. Um, at the same time, though, sometimes you get less and less mutual understanding that that becomes uh, harder and harder to bridge at moments, at least in my experience. Um, one of the nice things about UIC, which is an incredibly diverse campus in terms of the, the backgrounds of the students, um, is that you do see in these 18, 19, 20-year-old students a real desire to bridge those differences to be multicultural, to you know, have conversations and so on. But part of what I've experienced as well uh, in the classroom, and it seems to, since COVID hit, has seemed to be exacerbated because of the isolation, is that that can sometimes be a struggle. And students have a hard time understanding each other. They have a hard time st- understanding instructors sometimes. And just communication becomes a little bit harder despite the expanded uh, media sphere with the internet um, in terms of the possibilities of communication. I think this idea of trying to bridge these bridging conversations is a could be a segue to a topic I know that we wanted to return to. Um, last spring, um, Cohen, you had brought up the model or spring 2019, two years ago, speaking of loss of time or struggles in the pandemic. But Cohen, in our conversation back in Williamstown in spring of 2019, you'd brought up the model of the third generation university, which I, 
I remember you talking about it as a way to kind of bridge between disciplines or rethinking. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit more about what you mean by that third university, third generation university, um, what, you, what you mean by this and why you think this model is worth considering. And then Blake, I welcome your thoughts from your perspective about that notion of a third generation university and is it a future we should be considering? Okay, yeah, so the, uh, the image of this uh, third generation university has been uh, painted by um, Hans uh, Wissema, and he's a uh, professor emeritus of uh, innovation and um, entrepreneurship uh, at Delft University in the Netherlands. Uh, and I think he published a book on the uh, third generation university in 2009. So it's not a fresh uh, concept, so to speak. So, but anyway, so yeah, is, if there's a third generation, you have a, a first and a second generation university, of course. Um, and the first generation university, that was the medieval uh, university. Uh, and that was a university that, not, uh, that did not promote what we call research. So they focused on teaching um, age-old accepted wisdom uh, over and over again. Um, and it was only later in the um, late 15th, 16th century that the um, scientific method um, only started to develop properly. Um, and, this, and that's interesting uh, uh, in itself, I think, this scientific method developed outside of the um, universities. Um, and so, and of course, the universities were not always happy with uh, the developments, but that's another story. And it was only in the um, 19th century that research became the second objective um, of universities. So next to teaching, and these universities became the, the second generation universities. But these uh, universities were not interested in the, um, in the application of their research findings. Uh, it was only after the Second World War that uh, universities started to develop a proper outward-looking view and that they started to interface um, their research um, with, with societal challenges and also with the market. And so this outward-looking perspective and to a certain extent uh, the monetization of know-how became the third objective of what we now call the third-generation university. Um, so basically, that's in a nutshell what uh, Wissema uh, describes. Um, so I'm not quite sure about the, the focus on the market and the monetization of uh, know-how in these third-generation universities, but I really like the idea that universities should be outward-looking. Uh, and also that the traditional organization in schools and departments should be or could be reconceptualized um, and really aligned with uh, challenges and debates that are happening um, as we speak. And so this means, for example, that let's at this point, uh, there's a debate on the uh, restitution of works of art. Um, what this could mean is that um, we could, we as art historians could, could uh, team up with, with um yeah, philosophers with colleagues working in international law, but also with computer scientists. So we could team up and form a hybrid research unit that focuses on, on the restitution of works of art, but also possibly on the, um, let's say, the replicas or the digital replacement of these works of art. So it could be a way, perhaps it's not the best uh, example, but it, 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 the third generation university has this promise of, of shaping of constantly reshaping itself, readapting itself to um, 
we um, basically to, to, to ask um, professors and specialists to form teams that are really zooming in on, 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 on things that are happening um, in society. And that's something I really, I really like about this third generation university. I um, particularly appreciate the idea of the outward looking uh, aspect of the model. And indeed, this feels very close to me and my main focus um, as an artist and then as an art historian has always been to think about uh, the relationship between artistic practice and larger social issues, political issues, historical issues, uh, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently and writing a bit about is the um, the PMC, the professional managerial class. This is a concept that was developed in the um, in the late 1970s. Um, and it's as a category, uh, what it typically refers to is that moment in the 19th century that Cohen was referring to when universities started to uh, become research universities. Um, and the basic idea um, behind this as a class category was that professionals should have their own standards. You know, you should have engineers should have their own standards for what constitutes a safe bridge, you know, what constitutes a safe building, et cetera. Um, you know, or is with my experience, you know, a, you know, a safe parking lot, but um, the, uh, and what this allowed reason that this allowed for the production of a separate class category is because then engineers could say to their employers, the capitalists who employed them, they can say, no, I'm not going to do just what you want. I'm going to do what the professional standards tell me to do. And in that way, they could separate themselves from the their employers um, and present themselves as professionals, you know, charge professional fees, um, et cetera. This, of course, on some level could be said to be uh, the second uh, generation model, could be said to be an extension of the first generation model, where the monastics, uh, you know, the monastic intellectuals uh, in the Middle Ages started to separate themselves from the social order uh, in universities. And out of that emerged eventually you know, humanism and, and the Renaissance and then onwards to the Enlightenment and, and, and so on. So that separate, that capacity to separate yourself from the economy, separate yourself from the employer and have some leverage, social leverage, has been a really valuable aspect of the first and second generations of the university. One worry then I have about the third generation is that we forfeit that distance, right? And we get collapsed into the larger economy. We no longer have leverage to be uh, make professional distinctions about the quality of a bridge or a parking lot. We no longer have the leverage to make uh, social distinctions Right. And therefore engage in the world as cultural critics, as social critics, saying to the politicians and the business people, the people who run the economy, you know, hey, wait a minute, the way you're doing this hurts people. Right. And we have enough distance that we can see that and we can articulate that. And we have enough professional authority. Right. As you know, holders of PhDs or whatever the credential is that allows us to. Um, with authority, make that critique. So uh, my hope for any third generation model is that there would be a way to re-articulate not only the outward facingness and meaning involvement in the world out there, but also a way to articulate the distance, 
right? That allows for a separate professional status. Well, that's really great, Blake. So then we are basically developing the fourth generation university right now. <laughs> Let's write the book. I think that sounds like a great idea. Blake, who is going to read books? We're in the digital age, right? So <laughs> Let's write the tweet. Yeah, this notion of expertise, um, which I think is, you know, been, it's always been there. I mean, as you said, uh, Blake, I like that, you know, the, the, the PMC model, um, it, and you're in Chicago where I studied and, and worked with the historian Harold Perkin, who wrote a book on the rise of the professional class describing Great Britain at the end of the 19th century. Um, but I, I think about some of the challenges we face today when we're trying to create some of these collaborations, but maybe these challenges have always been there. But, you know, with humanists trying to work with technologists and computer scientists, when the realms of knowledge are so far apart, so, you know, where I hear humanists describe what uh, an algorithm is doing as the black box, um, so I, I wonder if both of you have, um, you know, any further thoughts on, you know, that desire that I hear you both saying, let's envision that fourth generation university where that expertise is respected um, and the ability to stand back and, and, and look critically at the work being done, but the challenges we face when understanding the nature of that work um, is sort of beyond our scope of training. And maybe it's a, a there's an element of trust in there that I'm not quite surfacing enough. But um, yeah, maybe Blake, I'll, I'll pass it over to you first. And Cohen, if you have any further thoughts. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent question, Ian. And um, I suppose one of the ways I, I tend to think about it is to just think about the, you know, the age old uh, scholarly question of rigor. Um, and, you know, one of the worries that I um, have had and have experienced with interdisciplinarity, the concept of interdisciplinarity, um, as for example, it has developed in um, areas like cultural studies as a, as a you know, semi-discipline or area of study, is that sometimes uh, it means the muddying of the distinctions between disciplines rather than the mutual enrichment between disciplines. And so I, you know, all of my students, of course, are very interested as they should be in interdisciplinarity. And it's something that I um, promote with them and, and support them with. But I try to hold them to standards whereby um, they are fully trained and fully rigorous as art historians, as well as, say, women's studies scholars, or as well as sociologists, or as well as economists, or as well as political theorists, so that they can they can lay claim to full scholarly disciplinary rigor in every area that they bring together into interdisciplinary dialogue, or they collaborate with somebody and allow for the interdisciplinary rigor of their collaborator in its full glory, together with their art history rigor in its full glory, and those two things enter into dialogue. And so sometimes this is another variant of the worry about looking out, that sometimes it means abandoning the standards of the discipline um, and we lose something in that process sometimes, obviously not all the time. 
That's really interesting, Blake, because um, in in my lab, um, I always tell the the art historians that they um, should hold hands with the computer scientists, but they, they are not allowed to kiss each other. So there is this idea that they have to walk together, right? And and one of them is looking at the trees and the other one is looking at the plants. And so by walking together and by discussing things, hopefully they'll create something new, but they have to respect each other's boundaries, so to speak. And that's really important. I think in the past, perhaps people have been too hasty in, in, in like you were saying, in muddying the, um, the distinction between disciplines. So, yeah, that, that, that's really terrific, Con. And I'm going to heretofore adopt your metaphor and have a strict no kissing rule. Con, <laughs> maybe you could just say a few words about the nature of your lab. So in my lab, we, of course, I'm an art historian. So uh, most uh, PhD students um, are art historians, but we also have um, postdocs and PhD students in computer science, but also um, in um, philosophy. Um, and we have one philosopher also being a co-supervisor of this team. So we really have, an, uh, have a, a hybrid um, team. So what we try to do is we try to think about, well, we try to rethink um, traditional art historical questions. And then we see even to what extent digital methods and digital tools can help us to um, readdress these questions. And also, of course, by doing that kind of work, we also get new questions, new art historical questions. But um, in the beginning, I felt that the art historical questions were the alpha and omega of the project. But then after a while, I started to realize that also the computer scientists and also the philosophers, that they themselves had a couple of really interesting takeaways from this kind of research. And that's why I started to realize that perhaps doing interdisciplinary research means respecting and accepting that we all talk different languages in the end. I take it because it connects up to what, what the way Blake was describing, mutually enriching. One is not in service to the other, um, that they're both on a mutual path of exploration, but those paths may also be shaped by the genealogies of those disciplines, the, the history of the questions are being asked, the audience to which those questions will be posed. So I don't know, Blake, if you have any further thoughts on this. Um, in my experience, most of the interdisciplinary work I've done <clears throat> with collaborating with others has been with um, people in the humanities or with artists. Um, so, of course, it's a different um, beast than working with computer scientists, um, um, but uh, perhaps not so different from working with philosophers. But the, um, uh, you know, one thing maybe I would just add to the discussion is that <clears throat> while I love working collaboratively generally and you know have done a lot of it a lot of publications and so on uh, that have been collaborative um, I also find that um, sometimes working collaboratively interdisciplinarity uh, can be difficult and some of the difficulties have to do with just very different ways of thinking about things so one example of that would be working with people uh, literature scholars in the humanities and uh, in part because particularly the English departments on, on campuses in the U.S. are much bigger than our history departments. Uh, it sometimes feels like a colonial relationship uh, with uh, art history being the colonized discipline. Um, and just as, um, you know, extend the metaphor, just as uh, parts of the world that have been colonized in the past have 
uh, you know, railed against many things, but in, but among those things have railed against the ignorance of those that are colonizing them, the way in which they don't really understand what they're talking about, that they're confused and it just feels like, uh, I don't know, adolescent art history, something like that. Um, that's been part of my experience. So it, it feels like a uh, holding hands uh, and, you know, maybe an occasional slap in the face uh, as well, uh, you know, but, you know, just like no kissing, no punching, you know, but, you know, the occasional, uh, you know, slap to say, what, you know, or shaking of the shoulders saying, what are you talking about? Um, I've been looking at other models. Cone, you kind of inspired me to do more research and reading on this. And so I was looking at um, an article that was in a journal that's published here in the States called Campus Review, which is about higher ed. And um, it was an article by Martin Betts, who was taking this idea that you have of three horizons that we find in industry um, and thinking about that, um, using that model or metaphor um, in higher ed. So in this framework, the first horizon is the product. Um, so, you know, the thing that you make. So for us, it would be in higher ed, it would be, you know, the ways we do pedagogy, the ways we teach, the ways we do research. Then the second horizon is the, the incremental innovation that happens to that. So, you know, oh, let's have the flipped classroom. Let's not have the, the, the faculty member as the authority in the center. Um, and then, but then he goes on to say, look, 2020 turned some of these things upside down. If you thought there was sort of this progress of incremental innovation, um, and, you know, there was no way to teach face to face. Um, there were no ways to have, you know, student gatherings on campus in the ways we once had or research labs weren't functioning in the ways they used to function. Um, so we got forced to have breakthrough innovation rather than incremental innovation um, during this period. Um, and I'm curious in that sense, because during you know, as a result of the pandemic lockdown, the global pandemic, there was this tremendous pivot to the digital. Um, and I'm wondering how the digital showed up in your research and teaching. And did it feel like a breakthrough innovation, more incremental, or maybe something else? So I'm, again, wondering how that turned to the digital in the wake of the pandemic how that maps on to this notion of, you know, the the second horizon of um, incremental innovation or the third horizon of breakthrough innovation, or was it actually something entirely different and that model just doesn't really fit this moment? Maybe I will start out on the, the smaller, just... Um, the kind of apps that I like side of things, and then um, <clears throat> go from there to a to a more social question. Um, but this is the um, app called Perusal, P-E-R-U-S-A-L-L, <clears throat> and it's basically just a social reading app. Uh, and it's worked out great in my classroom uh, because the conversation gets up and running around the texts, you know, prior to the actual meeting and the threads can be super lively. So it's really kind of expanded uh, the classroom experience uh, in a rich and productive way. So I think of that as being an unqualified positive. 
Uh, as to the larger social issue, um, one of the things I'm currently teaching a um, well, I'm currently teaching two courses. One is a graduate seminar, and that's synchronous on Zoom. And I have students piping in from Brazil, Turkey, and India, and occasionally from the East Coast, uh, and so on. And so that is an unqualified positive because you have students involved in the classroom that would not otherwise be able to be there. Um, and it works pretty seamlessly, by and large. It's different from being in person, but it is it is very effective. The second class I'm teaching is an asynchronous introductory class with 150 students. And there is a ton of pressure um, to offer these asynchronous classes coming from two sources, one from our needy students at UIC who have, you know, working full time or taking care of their parents or their nieces and their nephews, right, and trying to go to school full time at the same time. So this is a great efficiency for them. So that is terrific. There's also pressure from the university because it's a money-making model. Um, but of course, it's also very hard on the students because they have to be disciplined themselves to screen these videos and keep up with the course material. They can't just come to class, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and, and uh, know that they need to be there. And so we have some students that excel at it, um, and it's real, real plus. But then we have a lot of students, too, who just fall behind because it's too much to ask of them and to, for an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old to be sufficiently self-disciplined to keep up with this model. So I think it's uh, this is going to carry on forward, I believe, and it's going to be have many positives, uh, but I think it's also going to have a bunch of negatives that go along with it. So I think as far as a paradigm shift or, or whatever it is, uh, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. I completely agree uh, with you, Blake. At first, I, um, I felt that um, because I'm a big believer in, in um, digital technologies and, and remote learning, and I felt and I hoped that, um, that this was going to be a real game changer, that we... Um, as professors, as, as universities, would really um, reinvent ourselves in a way and that we would fully um, understand and use the possibilities of these digital tools. Um, but then, of course, um, I don't think we were prepared to do that. And that's a shame because we were forced to invent things and, and put them out there before testing them properly. And of course, and perhaps this is just human nature, but people tend to um, remember the failed experiments rather than the good things that happened uh, during the pandemic. So I think I was hoping to have this breakthrough um, innovation, so to speak. But then I uh, quickly realized that, no, it was going to be incremental and that not all courses, not all professors, not all students are going to like the same thing. We have to think about this blended learning, the flipped classroom, the remote learning, and, and what kind of um, policy, what kind of things are we going to do this year, next year? Uh, but it's interesting to see how, um, how things have changed. And I think perhaps... Um, um, are going to stay. I mean, for example, the, um, the student-teacher relationships. Um, I must confess that prior to the pandemic, I never really appreciated how, how important we as teachers can be in helping students um, transition to adulthood, 
So I provided a safe um, and respectful classroom. And of course, I delivered high quality course content, or I tried to do that. And I used teaching strategies uh, to make the students the best possible art historians. And basically, I simply assumed that was all I had to do or could do. And, and now perhaps it's, I, I, I realize it's even more important to be, um, to be human, basically, I think. Um, so I hope um, that one of the things we, uh, and that might be a breakthrough innovation, but then perhaps within this Belgian university landscape, is that we take more time to show uh, students that we too um, are struggling with, with emotions and frustrations and that we all experience stress and that, that all our cultural differences and, and personal stories perhaps shape our identities as, as students, but also as young professionals and perhaps not so young professionals. So by, by, by having to deal with Zoom and, 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 and yeah, lamenting the loss of direct contact, that really, that's something that I will always remember, I think. Um, because in the past, and especially in Belgium, of course, we have to take care of students. But the thing is, we are not their parents, right? That was always assumed. They have to work hard and we have to provide the best setting, but we don't necessarily have to take care of them, of their mental health. That's something that, yeah, their, their peers were going to do, their parents were going to do. But now I think our roles have changed. Um, so that's one of the things that perhaps, from my point of view, at least, is a breakthrough um, innovation and the digital tools or the methods that's simply incremental that can never be a, break, a proper breakthrough, I think. I could just add one quick thing to that, and that is that the um, one of the things I'm sure that you you have experienced as well is uh, the the different kind of intimacy that happens over Zoom. And the way I was talking about it with a friend yesterday was that it's just well, you know, I no longer have the desk between me and the student. You know, uh, there's a way in which even though you're now not in the same room, you're just on screen, there's also, a, 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 you know, there's a heightened distance, but then there's also a heightened intimacy. Um, and that's something that's been, you know, interesting to navigate and interesting for us and I think interesting for the students. Of course, um, you probably have, you know, students who don't turn their cameras on sometimes, uh, right, and so on. And so that creates also another kind of weirdness where, you know, they're kind of listening in and most of the students have their cameras on, but a few of them don't. Um, and so you're, you know, trying to navigate that uh, as well. So I think it's, it is a totally interesting social experiment that we're going through. Um, you know, it's hard to know, you know, how we come out on the other side of it, but, um, you know, I think we're all grappling with it in good faith and doing the best we can, uh, but it is a little tricky at moments. I want to say how much I appreciate both of your sort of thoughtful engagement with your students and your willingness to be kind of self-critical about your practice. I wish I could be a student in your classroom. Um, I, I want to, you've talked a lot about your teaching, your engagement with the students, um, which is part of your practice as art historians, but I'm wondering if we could take this question about the pivot we've made, the digital turn, um, in light of our discipline of art history and how we might rethink or reapproach our discipline with that lens? Or maybe is that a false question? Is that just, you know, we've been in this moment and I'm just applying this lens to the discipline because it's, it, it 
it, it feels so present in my life, the, the turn to this digital and use of apps and things like that. So I'm, I'm curious if you feel that there's an opportunity for the discipline of art history um, that, you know, uh, that you want to share um, or or cautionary tales, um, you know, so opportunities we want, want to take advantage of are cautionary tales that we might want to be um, wise and savvy about. So um, maybe, um, well, I, I know both of you will have thoughts about this, um, but maybe Colin, I'll invite you to start and then and then Blake. Okay. Um, yeah, I think um, I like to think that the, uh, that the glass is half full. I know it's half empty. <laughs> Um, of course, in real life, but it's, I like to think that it's half full. So I think that perhaps um, we have to focus on the, the opportunities first. Um, and I think that um, the pandemic has also um, made me realize that it's much easier to organize our field. Um, and that's an open door, of course. I, I think it's now much easier to collaborate um, on national, but also international and global uh, level, of course. It's much easier to participate in events and workshops all over the world. It's much easier to meet, no desk in between, but unfortunately no coffee or no cocktails in between, <laughs> but it's easier to meet uh, colleagues. So in, in the beginning there was this, people were shy, right? And, and, and afraid of the camera and switching on the camera, but I think we, most of us, um, have overcome that fear. So we are now just participating in this global um, dimension of art history. Um, I also, and at least at uh, Leuven University and, and in Belgium, and I think in a lot of European institutions, libraries and archives, they also um, um, start, well, not started because they were already uh, putting a lot of things online, but then they developed uh, those programs. So it's now even easier to access um, materials. Um, so that's something that I really, really, really um, think is, is, is a good thing coming out of this pandemic. Um, and then, of course, also the, the very object of our field. Uh, I think that the pandemic has, has, has learned that nothing beats the real thing. We still want to see and touch and smell the work of art, of course. But at the same time, um, the pandemic also highlighted the importance of and the effectiveness of digital collections and digitized art. So I think that also um, helped a lot of museums, for example, um, but also the art market, of course, auction houses, to really think about ways to um, promote and, 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 and make accessible these uh, huge digital collections uh, sometimes, and ways to help people to engage um, with these collections. So I think that's also something that we can, um, yeah, can be grateful for. Uh, for. And then perhaps, who knows, in the future, um, people will say that 2020, 2021 were the years in which digital art really became a thing, right? Something that a lot of people started to, it's not that it began in 2020, 2021, but now I found that even more conservative colleagues are really thinking about digital art and, and, and try to um, develop the debate with the students on this digital um, art. Yeah, I would um, second everything that Cohen said there and just to add that <clears throat> um, on a more abstract level that, um, of course, 
with the advent of any new technology, whether it's something like photography or the internet, or, or if we think about, um, you know, social technologies like the the idea of the modern state or um, the idea of a capitalist economy or you know anything like that, anything that organizes people into a set of relations, that it affects how we think about our work and it affects how we think about um, the function and the meaning of art. And so I think that all those things are shifting as we speak. Um, and I think that the pandemic was a little booster, you know, in that, you know, it was already there with the internet to begin with, but but the pandemic has certainly been a kind of booster shot in that um, just through very mundane things like our um, experience of working on Zoom or our experience of asynchronous education. It affects how we think about our sociality, right? And that then becomes a model that structures how we think about the value, the meaning of art, some functions how we think about art as a playing a critical role in society, um, you know, critique, playing a role critiquing society, um, et cetera. So I think that is all um, material for research, you know, stuff to reflect on in the course of our research as we continue to do the interpretive work that we we do. I, I appreciate your point because it's truly an unfolding narrative um, and it's one that we're exploring together and then there'll be a point at which people look back and and re-explore. I was just thinking about this fourth generation university still. The, um, and I think one of the differences is also that um, in the past there was this emphasis on building the, the physical infrastructure of university campuses and libraries. Uh, and of course, now we have to think about the building the virtual infrastructure. And I think that's a good thing as well, because it, that means that we don't need all these um, campuses perhaps anymore, and that we don't need all these people traveling back and forth all the time. So that might be um, seeing what's happening in Glasgow right now with the climate uh, summit. So that might also be something that hopefully, um, you know, will um, will change the the, the future of, of higher um, education. And I've heard interesting models of like satellites and hubs, how we might leverage and connect between where we where we do have these physical instantiations. How might we leverage those and connect without having to build more? Um, and I think it is interesting because that building more was so much the paradigm for so long, right? It was grow, grow, grow. Um, and how might we rethink that, um, as you said, kind of using a virtual lens? I don't know, Blake, do you have any further thoughts? Oh, I was just going to add one one thing to that, which is the, um, you know, and this relates to um, my contribution to our prior collaboration. And um, And so thinking about the models of, uh, digital institution building, digital relations that we look to to think about our practice in the academy, our practices, our historians, and so on, I think is really important. And so one uh, distinction I tried to make in the collaboratively, collab collaboratively written essay that we all contributed to um, was uh, the idea that if we, we could, if we, that Wikipedia represents one interesting model because it's uh, based on something like the idea of the social contract, 
right? The 18th century model, you know, um, 17th and 18th century model, but uh, of the social contract. Uh, and of course, we, there are many other models we could look to that would might be less appealing. So if we think about something like Uberization, you know, um, and the way in which that is producing new precarious forms of, of labor. Um, and I think that we naturally, quite naturally, will look to existing models as we seek to digitize our own practices. And I think it's just a critical question just to be open and clear about what models we're looking to and thinking through the benefits and the pitfalls um, of those different models. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to resources referenced in the conversation, please visit clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. This program is produced by Caroline Fowler and myself, Caitlin Woolsey, with editing by John Butine, music by Light Chaser, and additional support provided by Annie Jun and Jesse Centivan. The Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge Munsee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors past and present and to future generations by committing to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all.